Welcome to the Film Crew Love Podcast. Let's have some fun. my favorite people in the television and film industry is Dwight Williams. He's managed sets, led crews, and built budgets for shows such as Lean On Me, New Jack City, Friday, Dead Presidents, Girls Trip, Baby Boy, just to name a few. He's worked in the industry at least four decades and has managed production teams of some of your favorite directors and producers in black cinema history. He's one of my favorite OGs. We talk all the time. We've talked over phone, text, email. He's had me over to his home and we discuss all nature of conversation. He's kind of an uncle slash film professor. Let's listen up for the one and only Dwight Williams. Welcome to the Film Crew Love Podcast, the labor of film love, the love of film labor. I am pleased to be joined by the legendary Dwight Williams. How you feeling, dear brother? I'm uh, feeling wonderful, you know? Yeah. <laughs> In this day and time, to be able to say that, I guess, is a testament of uh, great, great meaning, huh? But I'm feeling wonderful, yeah. No telltale. Yes. Uh, we are recording this uh, about a week, a few days before May 2020. Uh, Dwight Williams uh, is a production manager. I've been a veteran assistant director for uh, at least four decades. Right, Dwight? Yeah, this is like my, uh, I think, 50th year in the Guild. Wow. 50 years in the industry. Uh, I'll get right into it. We'll talk about your bio as we go along. But... Um, I just, you know, just to kind of break the ice a bit, I was curious, uh, along your 50th uh, years in the industry, behind the camera, managing sets and crews, um, what project do you think was the most rewarding for you? And uh, what was the most challenging and why, if anything sticks out? It's interesting. I was thinking about that, and uh, I guess um, a project that I liked a lot and I thought was really important uh, even though it wasn't, didn't make a lot of money. But it was a movie I did with John Singleton called Baby Boy. Yes. And the reason I say uh, I thought I, I liked it a lot because, uh, well, John Singleton, who's a brother and uh, you know, a very talented guy, he started writing movies that um, had some meaning to them. But what do I mean by meaning? I mean, he was writing for movies about people in the Black community. He was writing movies about people in the Black community. And um, Baby Boy was a movie about these uh, sort of adolescent young brothers who uh, grow up, and as he would say, they would uh, sort of like a little sort of, yeah, they, they would break your um, break your daughter's heart and and, and um, kill your son. You know, they they, they, they were these volatile, dangerous young men because they were men raised by young women who really didn't have fathers around, didn't have mothers around. They were call so he was like, it was like children raising children. So he was talking about these young women who were having 
children while they were children themselves. And what's and these children, these young brothers, you know, who coming out were so volatile, so um, needy, so emotionally uh, unhinged in some respects, you know. And it was a great yeah. movie. You know, put um, Tyrese on the map, you know. Put, um, you know, it was really Taraji. yeah, Taraji Henson, yeah. Matter of fact, I remember when John uh, at the time. Also, the other thing John did, um, we were doing this movie with Sony at the time. And uh, I was a production manager and, and the line producer and the producer it was, it was really just John and I. And so we put our office right down to Merck Park, right? Matter of fact, it was such that some uh, white folks in the crew didn't even want to come down there to work. They worried if they were thinking they were going to the jungle or some crazy stuff. It was just, just amazing. But, but uh, I remember once my office was downstairs and John's office was above me upstairs and he comes running down the steps. Dwight, Dwight, you gotta see this. Place. You gotta see this. There was a, he would have, uh, the actors who were casting um, read certain scenes, right? And so there was a scene in the movie where there was this volatile confrontation between this brother and sister, right? This, this couple. And he showed me Taraji's audition where he had taped it. And most of the time when people get this volatile conversation, they would jump up and yell and scream and shout and get, get, in people, get up in these, other people's face, right? Taraji's scene came up and, and, and the confrontation comes up and she looked at this man and she got stone quiet, didn't say a word, just, just eyed him. And so Tyrese is looking at her and he just kind of like looks at her and she doesn't do anything. Then when he turned, when she turns her, when he turns his back to her, she charges him and jumps on his back like a tiger and just goes at him, you know? And it was so powerful, it was so volatile. And it was such a choice, you know? And it just showed her, her artistic genius, you know? I mean, she's such a, talented actress, kind of person who every choice she gives you is different, better, and something more significant than you would ever think about writing. It's so authentic and so true, you know? And so she had that gift. She had genius at an early age. But but I just like John because that movie that he wrote, you know, he was writing something that had some character. I knew people in the, in the hood who would come to me and say, you know, man, I saw that movie four or five times. I mean, girls were taking their boyfriends to see it. People were taking their children to see it, you know? He wanted to do things that had some uh, significance, you know, it was interesting. John's no longer with us, but he, he was, uh, you know, it, that's why I said that movie had some meaning to me. It wasn't like it was, uh, I mean, I, I'm part of the generation who grew up at the time when segregation was real, okay? So, you know, when people called themselves race men, when, when we really uh, had a sense of uh, the racial oppression that was around us, you know, people, sugarcoated and call it Jim Crow, but it was, it was, it was, it was segregation. I mean, I grew up in the North, so I didn't really have, have that as harsh as people had in the South, but I ended up going to the South in the sixties and things like that and working a lot around some of the things in the, in the civil rights movement and the black power movement and stuff like that. And so when I was choosing a career path and um, I was looking for a way that we could reach our community because in the South, when we were trying to affect change in the black community, we would, in these rural areas, and you could know if you're in the black community because you could just look down on the street and you could tell. You look down the street, it wasn't paved. Huh. You look on the sidewalk and it was open sewer. So you knew you were in the black community. You know, if the mosquitoes were biting you, you're in the black community. They didn't spray for mosquitoes spraying the black community. They sprayed for mosquitoes spraying the white community. But we would make up these comic books to kind of explain to people what political power was all about, why they should vote, why they should take the chance, why they should put their career, their life, their their very physical being and in, in existence, you know, 
on the line for it. And these comic books would kind of explain like, you know, the family and the clan and the community and the city and the state and where the power came from. And, you know, why some people had street lights and some people didn't have streets. You know, why some people had electric power and other people, you know, some people had sewers and some people had outhouses and some people had bathrooms in their houses, you know, so just basic things. We'd show movies on the sides of buildings at nighttime on the weekends, you know, and it was so, movies were so powerful. So I wanted to get into this business of learning how to make these things, you know. And so after I left the South in the sixties and went back North, I went back, cause I'd gone to school for two years. Then I dropped out of school and went down South for two years. And then I went back to finish my degree at Temple University in Philadelphia. When I went back, I went back into the filmmaking program. Matter of fact, while you mentioned, go on. That, that that's that's an excellent. I'm gonna um, find your background in one second. I was curious about uh, that, that scene you mentioned with uh, Taraji. Oh yeah, actually, they actually made the movie. You know, she had that. You know, they probably took that. John took that right off the uh, audition tape and put it right into the movie. Man, that's an yeah. excellent. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> reference point. I got a question about the challenging thing, man. What what? Are the projects you worked on, what do you deem, what was the most challenging and why? That's interesting. Challenging, you know, well. Um, oh, one of those shows where you say, I can walk away right now and, and I won't even regret it. <clears throat> that's interesting. Uh, I have found what made the shows challenging were the people you work with. There you go. And so, so I worked on one show and I let this director be nameless, but the director um, just kind of became unhinged. Matter of fact, I was on one show actually where they took the director, they took her straight off the set to the mental institution because she she actually had a meltdown and kind of became clear that she wasn't in her right mind. But another show I was on, and it was a really significant show at the time, 120 days and shot in the United States, shot in Europe, it was, it was a big deal. I had some really significant actors. Um, but while we're in the, in the United States, matter of fact, the director, and again, leave him nameless because I don't want to get into that, but there's a major scene between these two performers. Both were Academy Award nominated actors. I think one had actually won an Academy Award already at that time. And um, these, these, these two actors go at it, you know, and they're both white, older people. They finish this, they finish this really intense, maybe it was a like seven or eight page monologue, big, big confrontational scene, right? These these two people finish this. Director says cut, and he walks like literally right between them, and he walks to the wall right behind where they were arguing, and he starts talking about this shadow on the wall. And he calls his DP over. Man, the two the two actors looked at each other. One of them puts his hand up like you know crooks his finger like come here. So I go over to the two actors. He says, "Listen, you tell." That boy, that's what they call the director, mm. that um, we don't have nothing to do with him no more. I said, what are you talking about? I said, from now on, look, you talk to us. You tell us what to do. I said, but I, I can't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm the assistant director. He said, no, 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 look. We just, hey, we just out here, pivotal scene in the movie, and he's talking about shadows on the wall. He ain't even watching what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so now this was maybe like third week of a show that was going to shoot for like, you know, like 10 weeks or something like that, you know. And this was in the United States. We were going to go to Europe and everything. So it became, it's a literally, 
for the rest of the show. So I got, I go back to the director, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. This is a little hate up there, kind of upset. So, 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 so. And literally, I mean, he, I would find out what he wanted to say, tell the actors. They would respond and tell me and I would tell him. So it was, it was, it was the really strangest thing. So it, it really got, I mean, and, and actually the show went down from there. I mean, it, it, we would get to, we were getting to Europe and um, actors were staying in hotels and they you know, we, I'd bring them in in the morning and they get made up and everything. And we would kind of had, had an idea sort of what somewhere from the night before what, where, where blockings were going to be. So the crew would start lighting the shot, stuff like that, you know, and we'd be ready and we'd be ready to shoot. And Crew was the crew was ready, the actors were ready, and the director hadn't even showed up yet. So he was like coming late. The director now. These are two yeah. Academy Award stars. This is a big ass budget movie. We're in, you know, we've shot in the United States. We've shot in, we're shooting in Europe, you know. Uh anyway. So they, yeah. they literally tried to get them, they tried to get him fired. Uh I mean, I stayed on the show and got to the point that um the director was kind of so neglecting his stuff that he, uh, that the studio was tr- kind of pulled me aside and said, listen, you know, you got to talk. Cause also the DP wasn't on it either. They felt the DP was falling apart. So I'm supposedly like executing with the DP and pushing him. What do you want the electrician to do about this? And that they, they thought it was falling behind. So it became a lot of pressure on me, but Hey, that's, that's the job. You know, you do it. But ultimately we got to one point where we're filming up on this hill it's really like a, yeah, like a really, and, and down below, and we're filming this there's this tank, World War II, big giant tank, right? And this is wintertime, so there's ice and snow there and everything like that. And, and the word was, listen, hey, we've got, because they put the tank up there the day before, something like that, it's since snowed or something like that. And they said, hey, listen, you know, you can move the turn of the tank. That means, you know, you can rotate around where the gun, you know, the cannon of the tank is. That can ro- rotate around, but we can't move the tank. If we move the tank, it might start, it might slide down this hill and down the bottom of this hill with these houses. This is a tank that's going down there, you know, crush two or three houses. They don't know, you know, kill people. So we're up there and we're just seeing, and the t- there was not a reason the world tank had to move. Director says, hey, look, uh, move the tank such and such over. I'm saying, what are you talking about? I said, you know, we can't move that. Ultimately, man, I walked off the show. I mean, because mm. I, I just said, look, I'm not killing somebody for you to get this shot. These people have said, hey, you know, if we move this vehicle that, you know, it, it, it start moving, but we have nothing, there's nothing, we have to stop it. It's going to slide down this hill. We're right on this edge, we're up, up on the hillside, right? And, yeah. and so that was the kind of thing with like, you know, wait a minute, man, you know, how you, like, matter of fact, <laughs> the production manager in Europe uh, used to just say, he had to say, oh, it's just a movie, you know? I mean, it's not heart surgery, you know? Like he was, he was uh, really, he done like big shows over there. So that was his, you know, hey, it's just a, sort of like to break the ice. Hey, it's just a movie, just a movie, you know. Let's let's, right. let's let's get it done, you know. Yeah, so sometimes, man, the people you work for, they they create these conditions that, you know, it's uh it's unfathomable. I mean, this was way, way, way before people were thinking about safety, but I was just like, I'm not gonna have nobody get murdered on my set. You know? Right. I mean, I had been doing I had done big action movies with car crashes and races and stuff like that. And I mean, at that time, you know, I was, then I was a trainee, then I was a, just additional seconds and all that, then I was a second second, something like that. So I would be one who kind of take people to the hospital because they, they could let me go from the set. You know, I would 
be the one to accompany people in the hospital. So fortunately, I never took anybody to, to the morgue. But I was saying on my show, I don't want, I don't even want people to go to the hospital. So I'm gonna try to run a safe organization, you know, because it's like I felt like I'm responsible for people's children. I'm responsible for people's sons and daughters, you know. And I don't want yeah. to create those conditions. And some directors would do anything to get the shot. And I'm not, I understand career-wise, you want to do what you want because it's a really important vehicle and you've got millions of dollars and a lot of responsibility and it can be a career make or break situation. But I don't want to be life or death. And That's so interesting. At some point, I just refuse. I, mean, I, I got to tell people, look, you know, I sell my intelligence, not my integrity. I just ain't going there, you know. I love that. So my intelligence, not my take. So let me ask you this: What um, what job did you pass on it and regret not taking, or what job did you regret uh, or take and uh, regret taking? I mean, I'm sure you passed on a few that you wish you would would have stayed with, or something that you hopped on and said, "Hey, you know, I should have passed on this one." Is there anything that kind of sticks out either way? <laughs> you know, it's interesting you said that. Uh, because I was thinking about that. Um, when I got into this business and there were so few people of color doing anything, I was usually the only black person on the crew and things like that. So I really didn't have like mentors. I didn't have people like I could kind of go to and say, hey, career wise, what about this? Or strategically, should I do this or should I do that? And so forth and so on. So I was flying by the seat of my pants a lot of times and making what I thought were hopefully ethical and correct decisions and so forth and so on, right? So I had a chance to work on a major movie, Robert De Niro, Raging Bull, right? Mm. But I was doing, and I had already been prepping for about two, maybe three weeks now. Or maybe we're actually, we're actually shooting, I forget. Anyway, I was down in Philadelphia working with a brother, Stan Lathan. I was his first, his first assistant director. And we were doing this movie, Amazing Grace, a, a black comedy with moms made you know, yeah. very funny comedian from the, the black belt, right? And a production person who I had worked with before, who loved my work, offers me this movie with Robert De Niro, you know, Raging Bull, big movie, you know, Jake LaRod, Rod, you know, about the boxers. It would have been paid more. It would have had a longer run. It was a prestige film, you know, huge director. <laughs> But I was like, you know, wait a minute, why? You know, you got into this business because you wanted to make movies about black people for black people. Here you are doing just that. You've chosen this movie. You're working with this young brother because Stan Lathan was just kind of getting started in the feature world at that time, you know? Yeah. Um, he'd come out of television and everything like that. And he was sort of dependent on it. And I talked to Stan about it. Stan said, well, look, Dwight, you know, it's up to you. You, you can decide what you want to do. So he didn't put no pressure on me because he understood it was a significant thing. But I decided, well, you know, let me stay with this, you know, let me stay with this movie. So I turned down Raging Bull. You know, and, it was, and, it was, and career-wise, it was like the stupidest thing in the world. It, it just made no sense, you know. I mean, maybe, you know, ethically and so forth like that. But, but in terms of, you know, you want accolades, you want success, you want to be, you want to attach your star to the star that's moving further up, you know, you want to attach your star to that meteorite that's, that's crashing through the galaxies, you know. So uh, I was doing stuff that if I had had half of a brain or half of a mentor, you know, you know, I would have not done, you know. That's and it's interesting you say that. Yeah. The other thing I realized I was doing also, when I, I came into this program through the DGA's training program, and, and at least on the East Coast, I came out of film school and I got into this program and there's competitive tests and like st stat exams and 
psychological exams and all stuff. I didn't know nobody in the film business, but I wanted to learn how to make movies. And I was desperate, so I was going to do anything. So I was really going to, I was gung-ho. And uh, one of the things they did at that time, they had just they assigned you to various shows. So I ended up working with people who would have never even let me in the door, never let me in the office, never let me on the lot. And I kind of got a reputation because I was a hustler and a killer and I was just going to do anything to make the shot. And I was trying to be innovative and ingenuity and, you know, just got along with the crew because I kept my head down, just did the job and came early, stayed late and interviewed everybody in between, trying to learn everything I could. And so I was getting a lot of big jobs. But I also at a certain point realized, wait a minute, wait, you know, you want to work on these black movies. So I started taking these, well, after I got into the business and I'm actually working as stuff like that as a second and then later on as a first, I was taking shows that had what I thought cultural meaning to me as a black man in America, you know, that's something yeah. to do with our community. Well, but they, that meant that they would tend to be smaller films, less prestigious, not having any, you know, real name, you know, and someone was like things like Friday, which in the black community jumped off and were big, you know, and Crush Groove and Beach Street and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of career, okay, I'm over here having fun and working in my community and doing the things that resonate with me and hopefully African-American folks love it, you know. But it also meant that I was working now on smaller films. So when a big film came up, the things I had been trained on for two, three years in a training program, I go to interview for a big, big film, maybe looking at my resume and say, well, you know, you haven't done so-and-so and you haven't done such and such. I said, I used to. I said, yeah, yeah. but you, it looks like well, two or three years, you've just been doing such and such. I said, yeah, well, that was my choice. And I didn't realize, again, and not having a mentor, not having somebody up there, like uh, one of my Jewish friends used to say, not having a rabbi, somebody in the back pulling the strings for me, you know, out there thinking ahead of me with strategic, <laughs> you know, uh, strategies. I got into a track or a groove <laughs> that people thought, well, okay, this is what he does and he can't do the other thing. Yes. They don't know you chose the smaller projects with less resources, not because you couldn't get the bigger jobs, because those were, you know, people had no idea. I mean, I guess people pick, pick movies because they wanted to work on them, you know, not yes. because they had big stars or big action movies, but like the training on the French Connection and all that stuff like that. You know, had great times with Billy Freak and all that stuff, all, you know, all over New York, locking up whole neighborhoods and doing all kind of crazy stuff that was now get you put in jail. But we just... We just did it because we had a popular movie with the police on our side and we just kind of came in like just just did stuff to make those stunts doable, you know. So I knew how to do big stuff. I had so been an African barber slice and so but and I knew how to work with stars and all that kind of stuff, but I wanted to work with my community. So it, it kind of put me in a, a negative position with the community, and I just didn't have the foresight at the time, the knowledge, you know, to know that I was damning my career now <laughs> to these smaller projects. That's interesting you say that. Uh, you often hear of people pitching holding themselves in front of the camera. You know, they play a stereotypical roles, so they play it over and over and over again. Uh, a drug dealer or, or crack addict or any number of things. Uh, but that also happens, obviously, behind the camera, as you spoke to, where they look at your resume and say, well, this is all you do. You don't have the expertise to do this, this, and this. You say, hey, man, I have. I just uh, made a conscious choice to do this because of my uh, loyal and love for my community and the culture and helping young filmmakers come up uh, to tell the stories that I'm interested in. So that's, uh, that's also a choice a lot of folks had to consider as they transitioned along. I also realized that it was a lot also about who I was being interviewed by. Uh -huh. You know, because like 
I mean, to be candid about it, in white America, I guess they could, they would not for a moment question why Chinese man would want to do Chinese movies. Right. Korean man want to do Korean movies. Italian man want to do Italian movies. African-American want to do what? What do you mean you don't want to work in Hollywood? You want to work for who? You want to do what kind of movie? It never, it never dawned on them that we would make those choices. Or, you know, I think I don't think they had any validity or any consciousness. So, so a lot, a lot of times I've been, you know, I was being interviewed by the assistant to some producer, or you know, some of the people who were doing the initial screenings weren't the high ups who had some knowledge. They looked at your resume. They looked at maybe the last two or three things you do. They didn't look at the other twenty projects you did. They looked at, you know, oh, you just your most recent thing was this, most recent thing was that. So obviously you you can't do anything else. You know, I'm like, what? Wait a minute, hold it. Who do you think I got? I trained, you know. So, so I, it it was a two edged sword, but both both of them <laughs> kind of at a certain point condemned me to an area I didn't I didn't mind being in, but wasn't a, wasn't a choice I would have done at that time that way. I guess. That's interesting. That's very, yeah, that's insightful. Um, I normally ask folks about, uh, you know, uh, Leonard Garner. I don't know if you know him or not. He's, uh, he always used to tell me uh, folks are in this for either creativity or the money or the work environment uh, as, as far as the industry is concerned. Do any of those uh, levers move you or is there another reason that you're in the industry uh, or do you rank them uh, out of preference? when you're working in television or film? Yeah, it's interesting you see, I mean, um, I mean, like I mentioned, my overall arching reason for getting into it, because I wasn't around the film industry. I was around people saying, we shall overcome and let's, you know, move on, let's get this done. So I was out of this the black freedom struggle and yeah. this whole power struggle and, you know, let's let's vote and turn the world over. Let's make it a better place. So when I chose this field, I um, then I started choosing projects for that too. So I wasn't necessarily thinking about. Now I was interested in that, but also I also realized that I was always only going to do union union projects. I wasn't trying to do anything non-union. And the reason wasn't. I'm not even talking about non-DGA Directors Guild. I'm just talking about non-union. And the reason was, if I'm working on a union show and I'm opposed to exploitation, hey, I ain't got to worry about that. The contracts say you hire somebody and you work them longer hours and get paid more. Yeah, You do certain things at conditions, you know, there's a certain kind of health and safety rules and regulations already set up there. So all these protocols about behavior and I'm, I ain't going to exploit nobody. If you can afford to do it, then you have more people. We have an expensive pro activity that requires 10 people on the crew, then you're going to have to pay for that, you know, requires three people on the crew, you pay less, you know, but all those things were set up. So I, I didn't have to get that position where I'm making these ethical choices. I'm doing, a, I'm doing a union show, the rules are out and, and hey, I'm not breaking the viol violating the work rules. So, so it avoided me having to say like, hey, and ask somebody to do me a favor, which was like basically exploiting them because of my friendship with them or my kinship with them or something like that. So I, so that, that was one thing I did early on. I just said, I'll, I'll just go with that, you know, so I, because certain people were, and particularly these, these non-union shows, and I'm not talking about a student film or something like that, but just people were, it was much more prevalent some time ago. People were, what they used to call it, under the hat productions, I think they called them or something like that. And I was, and people were getting hurt, people were getting screwed, people were working crazy hours, but not, not enough, not fair compensation. And I looked at the position like, hey, look, if I'm exploiting somebody financially, then that person eventually is going to burn out and that's, they're not going to be in the industry. 
they're not going to be around. And we need skilled craftsmen. We want talented artists. So if we compensate them well, they'll stay in the industry and we'll have talented artists. We have skilled craftsmen around to create these, you know, cinematic productions we want to do. So I'm, I'm like, let's, if you can't afford it, we'll do it another way. And I come back to the creative team and say that, but you know, I wasn't about uh, trying to rip people off for the production to win brands for the producers. Okay. So you've been in the Directors Guild uh, about five decades. For those that don't know, uh, give it a day in the life of what a production manager does or, or specifically what Dwight Williams does as a production manager. Uh, I know every show is different. Uh, you can pick a show if you want or just how you tend to operate. You wake up, you're the first on set uh, for first shot or something. You stay to wrap. Uh, you go back to the office, do meetings, look at budgets. How do you operate as a production manager? Well, if I've done my job well, if I've done my job right, then all the ingredients I need are there at the set long before I arrive. That means in pre-production, we've developed a budget that is aligns with the items that are on the page in that script. We've got the money, we've raised enough money to shoot the movie. We've been greened up with enough resources to make the movie. We've hired the kind of people, and I call, I mean, like I cast the crew. I try to hire the people who not just do the job, but love their job and are good at their job. You know, so I try to hire talented people who are self-motivated, who are their own captains and lieutenants, their own generals out there in the field. You know, I tell people that soldiers get killed, but generals, you know, live to fight another war. So I try to hire smart people. And so I've hired those smart people and surrounded the director with that team. Then in his pre-production and he's uh, got the resources he's needed and he's picked the kind of locations that are work- workable. He's, he's had enough kind of rehearsals. They've kind of stuff run through, they've done enough blocking, they've done enough storyboarding, done enough screening. So that on that morning of shooting, you know, we have a plan that we're executing. It's not like we're getting up there in the morning and like, hmm, what should we do? You know, let's walk this out and think it out. You know? So I, I do though also find that because when you're a production manager, you have power. Yes. You have authority, you, know, you represent that, you know, you're the hire and fire. So uh, I, I try to be there early because when I'm there and I'm walking through the, the, the set, so I'm walking around the truck. So, you know, things jump up, things start snapping to happen, you know? So I, I, I can, I can help uh, do things that the assistant director necessarily doesn't have because he's not signing the paychecks. You know, he's not signing the time cards. I'm not signing the paychecks either, but signing the time cards. Right. So, uh, I'll come to the set. Then I would go back to the production office after after the first shots had gone off. So I would try to be there in the beginning. I try to be there at lunch. I try to be there at wrap. Um, but one of the things I did learn when I was working in Europe that I try to do, we'll never be able to do it anymore, is I also tried to have a production office near the set. Yeah, I did this show in Germany some years ago, and they had mobile production offices. And this was the time well before we had all these cell phones and Wi-Fi and internet access and stuff like that. But, and we were shooting in Berlin. So they kept their office kind of packed up in trucks and they would move it. So we're going to be in one neighborhood, one side of town. So for first week, so that their office was there. There. Then next week, we're going to be somewhere on the other side of town. The office is on the other side of town. We're going to be shooting someplace in the center of Europe, the center of Berlin. The office in the center of Berlin. What that meant is that the office was probably never more than five or 10 minutes away. You have a critical question with the producers and the production manager, you can send a car, they can be there on the set. Right. So, you know, we have important decisions. And the other thought about that, though, is that where's the money being spent? The money's not being spent at the production office. Right. Money's being spent on the set. Where are the problems? 
Where do you want the brain trust? Where do you want the decision making? That's on the set. So when I came back to America and I got to be, and I worked as director for maybe like 20, 25 years, and I finally got so bummed out working with production managers who I thought didn't care about the shows and called them like, you know, pieces of meat, you know, you know, we're just gonna hang this slab up on the, I mean, they really had no respect for the, the, the craft of making the movies, no regard for the crew. Um, and I thought, well, I can do better than this. I, you know, I'm not gonna schedule the most volatile scene or the most emotionally disturbing scene or the most emotionally um, difficult scene on the very first day in a movie when the crew's not even halfway up to speed, when the actors kind of just almost don't know each other. I put that in the middle of the show, you know, when we have some time, if it messes up, they can do it again. And the crew is up at 110%. The actors got it together. We've got, we're a locked organization, you know, we're like a, a fine, finely mesh machine. And I just thought I could do better than some of the production managers. So I wanted to start yeah. working with the production manager. And it, it um, so I do now, I try to have a mobile office. I try to have my office in a trailer, on the set, and so I feel like the accountants can send the stuff to me. But if if the, if the crew needs me, or if I'm if I'm like five minutes away, I'm at the base camp for the, for the whole show. I can be so much more effective to your organization than I can if I'm at an office somewhere back in the studio. Back that's smart. Yeah, that's good. So I like the uh, on set uh, three times a day at least uh, the lunch part and the wrap, and obviously uh, before the crew call starts. Um, then you know, obviously, the office close to the um, the brain trust. A lot of shows you get the, they come in at the beginning and maybe they end, and then there's a bunch of phone calls and you know. Uh, so that's actually that's a, that's a comforting to assistant director. I'll let you know, brother. Um, well, that's that's exact. See, I was assistant director. Yeah. I knew what that pressure was. I knew when those moments moments of inflection happen, and you got to make those decisions, and you're all out there, all alone, hanging out there on a the cliff, and nobody to help you. You know, they ain't got no bridge to success. You know, and no place to come back off the cliff. Right. You know? People exactly. walking the plank. So I wanted to be there. And the other thing is that I'm like, where's the money being spent? You know. And the other thing I would do is I would also demand that certain departments facilitate the crew. I would make sure that the set dressers always had makeup stations right close to the set, right outside the camera. So we have these little makeup stations that we can just move with us. We're up in a building. You don't have to go back to base camp to get made up. You don't have to go down somewhere, you know, because right. we're spending $250,000 a day, $20,000 an hour. If I save half an hour, I'd have saved right. $10,000, you know? So if I save an hour, I save $20,000, $25,000. So those two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, that matters, you know? So I set it up, so let's let's make it friendly to the actors, friendly to the crew, easy for production, you know? And you start saving money so you can every day come in an hour shorter. Well, that, that compounds on you. 50-day schedule, you might save, you know, five days off the schedule just by the way you right. organize the production. Nothing, nothing to do with the quality of the actors, directors, or DP, just to, you organize the production to make sure that right there, what we need by the set is at the set. And then I would talk to the directors and the actors of, hey, listen, we're going to have this little oasis over here. This is going to be your spot. So I wouldn't let them think of that makeup area on set as like something that I put there to disparage them. Say, listen, I put it close by so that you don't have to go all the way back to base camp. So you can come on, you can be on the set earlier. You got your little, you know, That's place correct. just just for you. So you all can rehearse over there. And, and, and I kind of like some, so I talk to the actor in a language the actor understands. Like I could talk to the crew and they look, language the crew understands or production studio in the language of studio, studio must have been budgets and figures. You know, the actor wants to say, hey, look, right. this will get you more shots. This will get you, you know, you can be here. You know, the 
I don't need you going back to the big camp. I don't want to say that after you go back to base right. camp, I lose 10 minutes every time. They, that, they don't care about that. But if I say, look, if you're on the set, you know, we can get we can get more setups. We can do more versions. We can do your version of the shot as well as the director's uh, version of the shot. And so the actor likes that. You know? they, I'm being production friendly, they think. That's excellent. Let me, um, I'm going to go down some of your, um, some of your credits here. I'm just give give me three words for each of these shows, right? A few of these uh, credits here. Uh, we'll work in reverse order. Three words for a girl's trip. Um, challenging, fun, um, and um, difficult. Fun, difficult. Okay. Um. Let's try Baby Boy. Oh, yeah, interesting. interesting. I would say um, poignant, meaningful, and um, historical. Poignant, meaningful, and historical. All right. Uh, let's yeah. try How Stella Got a Groove Back. How Stella got her groove back. Yeah. <laughs> Three words, huh? Well, um, I would, I, again, I, I would say uh, entertaining, uh, transformative, and um, how Stella got her groove back. Again, I would say uh, fun. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how about Players Club? Oh yeah, I was Ice Cube. Yeah. Well, um, hmm. that's interesting. Three words. <laughs> that's interesting. Three words. Okay. Well, again, I would say it was. Um, I don't like it's not a lot. I, mean, I don't know what, what one word says a learning yeah, experience, good. but you know, uh, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot on it because um, I was working with a director. Uh, three words, and again, it, it was it was a low budget, so it was difficult in that respect. So it was learning. It was difficult, and um, and again, I, I guess I also said talent. So now, so when you're working with talented people, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what's the exact word. Personalities, that, uh, talent, or just uh, creativity. Dealing with different personalities, or just when you say talent. No, yeah. just people who are talented, you know, had their different ways of approaching it. So, you know, you talk to people. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I got a few more here. Uh, what about dead presidents? Oh, the Hughes brothers, yeah. <laughs> New York, oh, that was fun. Yeah, that was one of my first big shows as a production manager, yeah. Oh. And these were twin directors, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So they had, they had two brains to kind of consult with. Um, and New York, huh? So three words. Boy, that's a, that's a very good, that's a good, Metric to ask, huh? Dead presidents. Well, um, and looking back on it, um, I mean, I could say I was proud of it because yeah. it was an accomplishment. You know, it's an accomplishment. Um, 
And I felt like I kind of shepherded Shepherd. it through. So I don't yeah. know, maybe that's the word, you know, shepherded it through. And, um, and I think okay. it was successful, you know. All right. Yeah. Uh, and to your first AD uh, credits, let's look at Friday. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. Chris Tucker, that was just, that was hilarious. And it was also, um, I I have to be resourceful. Yeah, because when you're working with directors who hadn't had a lot of experience, you know, you got to kind of, I feel like the director's guild should pay people twice as much for working with, not that this was a first time director, but a, but a director had done a lot. You carry so much more weight Man. as the assistant. So you have to be very resourceful because you are literally providing support for that person, that man or woman, you know? So you have to build that structure around them, you know? And that was what we did on that show. And the third word, Friday, is hilarious, resourceful. And um, the other one I would say is script. script. If it's in the pages, you can get it onto the screen. If you don't have it on the pages, it's going to be hard for you to make it funny, mm-hmm. make it entertaining. So we had a great script, and when you read it, it made you laugh. You know, you knew you, knew you had a breakaway well, thing. Oh, I you thought know, you were so going to yeah. say it was um, a lot of the stuff was kind of ad lib, but a lot of that was scripted, huh? Excellent. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean now now. Now I would also say now I would oh well I said yeah. resourceful. One of the things I made them do was yeah. shoot with two cameras because they'd be over here on Ice Cube and and Chris Tucker is cutting up and right. playing the fool right. and we weren't getting it. So I'm like no no you got to bring another camera here. We telling them look look we are yeah. missing stuff. This guy's genius. He does it. He he was disciplined enough. He give you the first version of on the pages. Then the second version was something improvised. The third, by the fifth version, the whole crew was in stitches, you know, yeah. belly laughing, you know. So, and we would miss it because he would do it for his shots, but then he'd also do it when Cube was going on, when, when we're doing the, the other angle. So I had to like beg, borrow, and steal and get them to get this, get this other equipment up here so we could capture that, you know, start learning how to do that, you know, talk to the director about it. Anyway, so that was us about resourcefulness. That's, that we had to you said. That's that, a veteran yeah. AD there who knows that when you're dealing with comedy, there's lightning in the bottle. I need to have every camera and every resource I can have on deck to make sure we get it. So I'm glad uh, that's a good tidbit there, man. I got a couple more. Uh, New Jack City. Oh, yeah. Drug deal and crazy Harlem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were in the, we're in the real neighborhood. We were in the real places. So it was no, but I've been doing that for so long. By the time I had a, I had a crack support staff around me, production locations, and yeah, we 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 were we could go anywhere in the neighborhood, you know. So I could we could do that. So uh, dangerous. Uh, I'll tell you another thing about New Jersey. I would say authentic. Yeah, because I mean, it really was about those people in that era and what what was going on there. And um, New Jack City. Yeah. And I guess I would say uh, neighborhood, because it really, I think, yeah, we really were in that, in, the, in those, in that community deep in the story, just, you know, 
resonated with what was kind of as crazy as it was, as wild as it was on the pages. But uh, it probably wasn't as wild as some of the other stuff that was really happening. I can't in imagine. 91. Yeah. In Har- you said Harlem? 91? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Lean On Me. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Newark, yeah. Joe Clark. That was yeah. about this legendary uh, principal who turned this urban school around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing I, I, mm-hmm. I would call extras camp. We had, we were yeah. filming in a black neighborhood, in a black school, sometime with 2,000, 3,000 young high school seniors and, you know, juniors and stuff like that. And our staff and the director's guild, you know, well, we didn't have many people of color. So it became like, how do we get these young folks to understand? So I ran extras camp Mm. for a week in advance. And I would bring in um, the groups of students and talk to them about, hey, you're going to be on a set. And there's certain things that'll be like starting a shot, we're saying roll it, stopping a shot, we're saying cut. We're going to have you go through certain activities. And we want you to do the same thing each shot. So if you're walking down the hall and go to locker 37, every time you go down the hall, I want you to go to locker 37. Don't, don't decide you're going to locker 48 or 57. Or don't decide now you're going to go talk to your friends because you're bored with that because we're going to see it on camera, you know? And, and just go through the, the, what about being an extra was and that you're going to get paid. You're going to see it. You pick your nose. You're going to see it being embarrassed. You know, we're going to actually wear the same clothes and the same scene. We might change the scene clothing during the shots or, you know, if we're going to take it different parts of the school. So all these young brothers and sisters would learn how a movie was made. This is the camera. Look at it now, blah, blah, blah. Because during the day, we don't want you looking at it. We're going to have rolls and cuts, you know. We're going to pay you at the end of the day off these vouchers. Don't lose the vouchers, so on, so on, so on. You know, and I did that. So by the time we run at extras camp every day, we met 250, 300 students. We had somewhere like 1,500 to 2,000 students, and we could have these mass crowd scenes they all knew about the movie. They're all enthused about the movie, you know. They all wanted to be a part of it. So that, so that was one thing about it. Me on me. Um, the other thing is that it was, uh, again, it, it was, this was one of those few movies about the Black community uh-huh. that they actually put resources into, you know. So that had, so we did have that, like, you know, support staff to do a, you know, the movie and we filmed in the original school and stuff like that. You know, they're, um, they're, they're remaking that. The director wasn't the person. They're going to re- they're gonna remake Oh, I could believe I saw it. That, yeah, I, uh, I think it's yeah. LeBron's company, uh, uh, Spring Hill and Maverick. Carter. Oh, okay. They got the rights to that. I think, uh, I forget who else yeah. is attached. But yeah, they're bringing that back. Yeah. At that time, because we had Morgan Friedman and he was hot then and he always was. You know, so yeah. It was great. You know, you were really talented actors and actresses. That was the thing I, why I love being an assistant director because I was around people who really, you know, you get your your energy gets up when you know, when when these people are doing stuff and the public, I mean, um, vilifies or criticizes or talks about people and TMZ and all that stuff like that. And but I give actors and I, I mean I just love what they're right. able to do. I can't do it. I couldn't you know be that vulnerable in front of hundred two hundred people. You know, you know the world's going to be about me and criticize me, but but these actors and actresses, man, I just I just I I thought it was my job to like be protective right. of them. You know. Speaking of that. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, we call this section, this might offend my political connects. Um, so you got three different categories. You got who do you consider underrated? Uh, who do you consider overrated? And who's properly rated? 
And when you think about that, it can be cast, it could be crew, it could be a department, it could be, you know, uh, a location, a person, place, a thing. Um, so, um, in the film and uh, television industry, uh, who's underrated, overrated, and who's properly rated? Well, it's interesting. I really do have to go back to this thing about talent. When I ran into Taraji Henson and I was telling her, listen, you're going to be the next Angela Bassett because it was just obvious and she didn't know it. But, you know, every every take, she would give you something better. Now, she was a trained actress. This wasn't somebody just out of some music videos or some girl in the bar stool. You know, she was serious, you know, committed performer. But she just has this gift for it. And when you see it, it was a delight. And when I'm around those kind of actors, I would try to send, let's tell them, and particularly now that I'm a production manager, think of me as the bulldozer. And they're going to say, what are you talking about? I'm the one to push all the crap out of your way. So, so what you want is going to be there in advance. Years ago, I did this movie, Soldier Story, and the brother, he was the lead in it, and, and um, he'd asked to have some bottled water or something like that, and we were filming way down in Arkansas on a military I'm base. actually That's watching all he'd that right bottled now. Water. Yes. They didn't get they didn't give it to him the first week. They didn't give it to him the second week. Third week, he pulled me over because I was his first assistant. He says, Dwight, you tell him I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I said, oh, what's, he said, because this was lunchtime now. You got thousands of extras out there, hundreds of people in the crew. He said, I asked for a bottle of water before I came to production. I asked for a bottle of water the first week, second week, third week. Now, this was a black actor down in the South, you know, in the 80s when it was. He said, when they get that bottle of water, I'll feel better. Man, they broke ass to get that bottle of water. But he shouldn't have had to go on, literally go on strike to get what he asked for. You know, he asked for it politely, intelligently, in advance, you know. So I, I think actors are underrated. People criticize them. Oh, they got their entourage and they got this and they got that. Wait a minute. You can't do what they do. It is difficult. It. We don't hire them because of their intellectual ability. We don't hire them because of their calculus. We hire them because of their emotions. And they have a, they have these abilities that they can do certain things. Now, if, if for that emotional support, if they want to be, a, like years ago, I worked with Marlon Brando and he had seven people that worked with him. They'd all been to film school together. They'd all been to acting, acting school together, excuse me. And they had vowed that if any one of them made it, all of them would make it. So he had his makeup person and his personal assistant and his chauffeur and all of them were actors who all decided that you know if one of them made it they made it when you hire marlon brenner you hire his, his entourage you know you hire samuel jackson you hire his entourage you know people have their entourage that's cool with me because that means if i want to know what does it take to get this person performing at peak performance capacity i can ask his entourage i can ask his assistant i can ask his makeup person i can ask his wardrobe person you want this you need this that okay now if i can't afford those perks i shouldn't hire that person they want a black car with air conditioning and such and such and such, not a white car with no air conditioning. All right, they want that. So give it to them. That's what they ask for. That's what they're comfortable with. That's how they get in condition to give us what we need, which is excellence on the screen and a believable characterization that the world's going to identify with and make the project millions and millions of dollars in perpetuity mm. forever. You know, so hey, if that's what they they've learned that works for them, give it to them. If you can't afford to do it, then you need to upfront talk to them about they're still willing to come on your production and do it. And if not, then you're just going to have a hostile work relationship. And that's stupid. excellent. So, so I do think actors, I think actors are underrated, man. And, and, and people 
don't understand why they want this cone of protection around them. They go from place to place. They're not home. Their home is with them where they travel with. They have no privacy. They have no security. They, they have no comfort. So I want them to be comfortable. I want them to have privacy. I want them to be able to operate at their level of excellence. And I'll do everything I can in my power to deliver that to them. And I also make sure that my staff reach out to them very, very early on and ask what they want, what they need. And I'll also try to communicate with them as much as I know about the conditions they're going to be working under. So they're not surprised either. Yes. Yeah, that's an essential job. And then it's a, and then it's a yeah, then, it, then it's a, a compatible relationship. You know, and also the other thing is if I'm gonna tell the truth. I don't mess up with people. If, if I have been when this person was just a beginning actor and actress, if I took care of them then and they meet me five or ten years later or fifteen years later and they're major stars, and like they remember I've I was honest with them then. I treated them with respect. I treated them with dignity. I did the best for them I could. And they right. love it, you know? All right. So who do you consider overly rated and who properly rated? Overly rated. Well, that's interesting. Right? I, I, um, well, I would say, yeah, I, would, I guess one thing I would say is, yeah, overly rated. I would say there's certain, and I'm talking about in the future world, there's certain high-budget movies and certain directors that work on them that get all these accolades. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But if, if you kind of have an open checkbook, if you have almost a limited time and you can do something again and again, you can shoot it and print it and didn't work, you can go back and reshoot it. You can cast it, shoot it, and it doesn't work, you can recast and shoot it again. Okay, well, um, hopefully, ultimately you get it right. But that, director out there, brother, sister, male or female, hardly any resources, hardly um, any money. They got to just work on creativity. They can't do a big car chase. Maybe they can do shadows of a car chase <laughs> or mirrors or something like that. They can't do some phenomenal action. So they got to find a way to still hold your attention. They're not going to be able to get the most empathetic actor. So they got to cast maybe an unknown, and work with that person to make them believable, make them relatable. They've got to um, shoot in a way that can be fast and efficient and entertaining because we're still a visual meeting, medium, but they don't have resources. They don't have cranes and helicopters and drones and 13 cameras and 60 setups and seven days to shoot. They got to hit it and make it, you know? So I think that what's highly underrated are some of these independent filmmakers who are doing things on a dime, but creating real works of art. Now, a lot of them are terrible. And I think what's terrible about some of the independent movies is that the studio system, it's elaborate, it's cumbersome, it's, um, it's elaborate, you know, of almost a maze to get through it. But they do have a script department. And most of the time, those scripts are worked on and worked on and chopped and reshopped and chopped and hashed and thought through and most of the time those scripts will be on a certain level before they make a major movie independent folks are quite often rushing so hard to make their movie that they're they're also independent director but also the writer and the fundraiser and the casting person doing 16 things so they don't have time to keep working on their script so some of the scripts aren't as great as they should be before they go into production because they haven't kept honing the script, whereas studio had an independent department constantly working on making the script excellent. So sometimes they are, the stories are not as 
sophisticated as they should be and pointed as they could be to um, tell what they do with the resources. Let me they ask have. you this: What? Um, who do you look forward to? I mean, you've been in the game for, for a number of decades. Is there anyone you still look forward to working with that you haven't worked with yet, either in front or behind the camera? Well, I tell you who. Well, I tell you who. Uh, Behind the camera, I like a lot is Ava DuVernay. I mean, the thing she did about the uh, Central Park Five, and I was in New York at that time, you know, when that went down, you know, to get that miniseries done, you know, what she did about the 13th, about incarceration of, you know, African-Americans in this country. You know, so I, I mean, I give her credit for being able to do seminal, significant films about our culture, but still in a way of artistry that is uh, poignant and heart-rendering and, and emotional. So, so I, I would love to work with somebody like that talent, you know, because, you know, she's not just making cookie-cutter cookie, cookie cutter comedies, not that I'm knocking cookie-cutter comedies, you know, because people making them making their money. There's a brother in Atlanta who's got nothing but them, you know, but, uh, and got a huge studio. So there's obviously an audience for it, but but she's done things that I think resonate and have some meaning. So I, I, like, to, I like to work on that. You know? Some years ago, when I was working with John Singleton, I brought him some scripts. People always bring me scripts because I knew John. And he would say, hey, look, wait, I'm not going to do that anymore. He said, I'm not going to do what? He said, I want to work on my legacy. Yeah. This was maybe 15 years ago. And I would say, you know, he was in his 40s or something like that, maybe 35 or 40. And I said, this young brother's talking about working on his legacy. He said, yeah, I want to start working on things I care about, things that mean something to me. And I thought about how all of us should be maybe starting to do that while we're younger. What do we want to be remembered for? What do we want on our tombstone? You know, you want to remember for, you know, the silly sitcom, or do you want to remember for something that maybe struck at the heart of something that meant something to you and your family and your, your fellow human that's, beings that's on this planet? Deep. I got the final question here, man. If you had to, as we move forward with this podcast, is there anyone in the film industry that you would like to kind of get more information on or who would you challenge? Who should we interview next? Because Dwight Williams wants to hear from them. As we, uh, This is basically you passing the baton on to... Oh either a crew or a cast individual uh, to get insight on their thought process, how they work, their inspirations, their motivations, et cetera. Oh, wow. Oh, that's it. Oh, yeah. I don't know, man. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I love Ava, what she's doing. I mean, there's so many people now, you know, uh, the sister does Insecure, which is great because it's showing us as complex people who, we're not worried right. about Whitey and the man, or <laughs> we're not running out here with drug dealers or athletes. We're just people, you know. I, so I love yeah. what Issa Rae, Issa Rae is doing, you know. Um, I mean, there's, you know, the brother who has Blackish, which really shows, you know, I mean, okay. so, you know, he's got, you know, they're, they're now whole other vehicles out there because of this m massive distribution system that's a lot different than just five or six studios when I got started. So, so there's, there's a lot of things that show aspects of our life as people of color and, and people of you know, humanity uh, uh, that, that I would think are, are significant. I, I would think they'd probably be a writer, I guess I would look at, because the people who are breaking ground on these scripts are people who I would look to write working for. Yeah. But I don't have a specific person. Those right are good. Now, you know? I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I, maybe, you say, maybe, I'd say Ava DuVernay, maybe I'd say Ava DuVernay, you know, because she, you know, came out of publicity and put together her whole organization and, you know, has fought tenaciously to have her, you know, herself get to do relevant work at a time when, you know, most people are doing comedy and fluff. So I guess I may better say her. Ava DuVernay, there it is. Talk to her. There it is. This is uh, Dwight Williams on the Film Crew Love podcast.
Uh, thank you very much, Dwight, for your time, man. I, I will follow up more with you. Um, obviously, you're one of you're one of my OGs in the industry. Okay. You know that. Uh, and um, we'll pass the baton on to our next podcast as we go on. Thank you so much. Okay, man. Right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.